Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Thanks, Stephen Mia, for reading that. It's an amazing text, and uh, it creates all kinds of intense visions, I think, in our minds of what John must have seen when he saw that vision of heaven. You know, in the last month uh, or so, I spent about a half hour on the phone with one of our Harvest members who uh, is serving our country overseas as a soldier in Afghanistan. And, you know, as we talk, what I realized was um, how much he reminded me of conversations I've had with some of our missionaries who are out in the field. In fact, just yesterday, I spent about a half hour composing a long email uh, in response to a request from a missionary friend who's serving the Lord in the Middle East. And what they said was, can you just send us some news about your life? Not like extraordinary stuff, but here's what I found people out in the field really crave. They just want to hear ordinary news from back home. They want to know like what new TV shows are coming out that I'm looking forward to watching. They want to know what my summer was like, what my last day was like. Um, have I used the grill a lot? How's things been moving into a new house? They just want mundane news from back home. And I thought about that. Why is that so important to people who are living far away from what they once considered home and in a place that's a little rough, where they always need to be mindful of why they're there? Well, I think I understand it now because it's as if we need a glimpse of another world in order to bring some sense and meaning and stability into the world we find ourselves in. You know, the book of Revelation, if you're new to the Bible, it's really the recording of an incredible supernatural vision which God gave to, to a man named John who walked on the earth at the same time as Jesus, was one of his closest friends, and after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, God gave this guy, John, an amazing vision. He peeled back the, the layer that separates this realm from the spiritual realm, and he showed John everything, and then he invited John to write everything down for our benefit. Now, the, the book of Revelation opens with seven letters to seven churches. These are seven open letters that express the heart of Jesus for seven churches that he really loved that are, are in now the geographic region we know as Turkey today. Um, these are seven letters which... Imagine what Jesus might write if he wrote letters to our church. And, and so this is what he does. He, he writes these seven letters. And in the beginning part of 2013, I'm going to do a sermon series covering those seven letters to hear what Jesus would have to say to the church even today. But right after he talks about what life is like for the church here and now on earth, the next vision which John sees is a vision of heaven. And it says, so interestingly, a door opened up right to heaven and he walked through and he was instantly transported into the throne room of heaven. And what a sight it must have been. And the reason for this is because what, what Jesus was trying to say to John was, if you're going to make it down here, slugging it through life, you can't do it without a vision of the other world that is just as real that drives the one we're living in, that is the place where we will spend our eternity. If you lose sight of that other world, then this mire and muck down here is all that will be real to you. 
If you don't remember the other realm, if you don't remember the throne room of where God dwells, where without question, without any kind of barrier, he reigns supreme as God. If you forget that place, then sadly this down here is the only thing that will ever affect your heart. I think that's where a lot of people in the church live. I know it because when I see their faces are down and we meet together and say, what's wrong? Everything they say is all about down here. That's not surprising. Down here stinks, doesn't it? I mean, it's rough down here. It's not that hard to find a bad day down here. But what I'm waiting to hear and often don't hear is, but what about the other reality that governs our lives? What about the fact that somewhere right now, God still remains fully, unquestionably in charge of everything? Yes, if you see down here, it's rough. But if that's all you see, the only reaction you can have is despair. Is there another reality you see which helps you understand the reality you have to live in right now? And that's really what this part of the vision of Revelation is about. I mean, here we are again at Hoffman Estates High School on a Sunday. This is something very familiar to us. But, you know, just like how we close our eyes when we pray or say amen at the end, there are things that are so familiar, we just do them out of habit without always knowing why we do it. What is, what is at the heart of this activity we're doing together? One day out of every seven, we meet in here and we do this thing. And we call this worship. What is worship? It's an important question to wrestle with because we're doing it seven, once every seven days corporately and then, well, theoretically anyway, doing it a couple times at least each week by ourselves. If you get worship wrong, then you will spend time ostensibly doing something that's supposed to draw you to God, but it won't actually have much effect on us, right? And so I think it's important to understand when we get here, and this is the question I really want to tackle, what's supposed to happen when we come together here. When you get your, your clothes on, your, you park in the parking lot and walk in, what are you expecting is supposed to happen in this place? Where is your mind at and what is your task? What's the goal of your time spent here at Harvest Sunday after Sunday? Are you interested in the answer to that question? You just all asleep? Do you, do you care about it? Because you're going to do it week in and week out. Wouldn't it stink to find out years later your head was in the wrong place? You missed out. That you did it but you missed it. I don't want that for any of us. And so let's explore through this text. Now, when you see a fantastical vision like this, there are some people, uh, we call them Bible nerds, who just get enthralled by trying to figure out why were the creatures covered with eyes? Why was one of them a lion and not, he didn't look like a jaguar? Why that particular big cat? And there are people who want to parse out and understand every little detail of this vision. And in the picking it apart, they miss the real power of the story. Now, I've done quite a bit of study this week trying to understand parts of this vision, and here's my conclusion. The scholars have no clue what, is, what it is. I mean, really, a lot of it, there's nothing even close to consensus among established scholars about what each of the little individual parts of the story mean. If God wanted us to understand every little detail, I think he would have been far less ambiguous. But there are parts of this vision that you cannot argue about. Parts that are so obvious and timelessly true, and those are the parts I'm going to park on and look at because I think they reveal something important about what worship really is. What is worship? 
the first thing I see in the worship that takes place in the throne room of heaven is that worship is about focus. It's about seeing God at the center of everything. Look what it says in in verse 2 of chapter 4. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now, later on, you read the incredible description of the room itself, but how compelling must the presence of God be that he walks into heaven and the first thing that he obsesses over is, there was this throne. There was this throne. And someone unbelievable was sitting on it. I don't know if you've gone to parts of the world that are unbelievable and splendor, you know, some of those those places where like 80 waterfalls are falling all around you. And can you imagine if you walked into a place like that and you say, dude, I went to the the place with like 80 waterfalls and there was this tree. Oh my gosh, this tree. There was this tree like, and you're thinking that must have been one heck of a tree. Because if you're in that place, seeing that kind of grandeur, but all you remember was a tree, what a tree it must have been. The first thing I see about John's vision of heaven is despite all the unbelievable other things competing for his attention, the first thing that seizes him was there was this throne and seated on it was God himself, someone who he struggles to describe what God looks like. The best he could come up with was he kind of looked like these precious stones, these gems. And then it says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and peals of thunder rumblings and peals. So how many of you guys ever watched IMAX, um, 3D movie, in a place with a really good sound system? Let me highly recommend Studio Movie Grill in Wheaton for this. I saw Batman, the latest Batman there, and it knocked my fillings loose. The sound system in this place was ridiculous. If you have kidney stones, go see a movie there. You'll pass them. It just... And when, when you're in the theater next door, I watched a comedy there, But there was an action flick going in the cinema next to us, the auditorium, and you could hear every time there was an explosion, your seat would go. And that feeling, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Where in your gut you feel the bass. It's like that. In the throne room of heaven, you don't have God sitting on a throne just being mousy going. This is God in his house. This is God comfortable. This is God like we are, maybe sitting in his boxers. This is my house now. Right here, you're going to get all of me. I'm not going to hold anything back because you can't handle it. This is who I am. And part of that is what people glimpsed over the ages in little bite-sized pieces. Rumblings. You know that word rumbling? I think it's such a cool word. Every now and then, whether it's a muscle car or, or a, an auditorium in a theater, you feel it. And then there's lightning and thunder, which are some of the most awe-inspiring natural phenomena. Can you imagine if you walked out of a house and saw a sky that looked like that? That is not a doctored photograph. Whoa. We need a bigger stage and a less clumsy pastor. Still working. That's, That's right. Can you imagine... If you walked out and saw that, if, if we could have it brighter, you would see it even more pronounced. That's the kind of sky you walk out and you just go like this. You go, whoa. 
And you go into the house and tell all your family to come out and go, that's, that's like biblical clouds. I don't know what that is, but that's like God's going, hey, what do you guys, you see that and you go, what is happening? Is it the end? Is something about to go down? Every now and then, you confront something in nature that makes you realize just how small and helpless you are. Have you ever been stuck outside in the middle of a terrible, terrible storm? I don't recommend it, but a couple times in my life, I've been out in the middle of a field in a terrible thunderstorm. Lightning going from, from horizon to horizon, that bone-jarring thunder. And you sit there and you go, whoa. And something very visceral, very deep down affects you because you realize you're, you're encountering something that is transcendent, that reminds you, us walking around like ants down here, it's not the whole story. There are forces around that dwarf us. And I believe that's what it was like for John. And so in his ancient languages, ancient mind, he tried to describe it this way. It was as if a thunderstorm were going on and the source of it was that throne. God's voice would terrify us if he spoke without toning it down. Now, why is this important for us to know? about worship, because John enters heaven and into the throne room, and the first and only thing that completely seizes his mind is God himself. God in heaven is not speaking to us any longer in, in gentle, still, small whispers. He's not playing peekaboo with anybody. He is pouring forth the fullness of who he is, and it is overwhelming, and he will not be ignored in his throne room. If you ever enter a throne room and the king is on his throne, you don't just walk and go, hey, check out this art. What's up, king? You, know, you don't do that. That's his place. He gets the first respect. He gets your undivided attention. In that place, life or death hang in a simple gesture of his finger. That is the throne room of God. It's important for us to understand this because I think it's very easy to ignore God. Wouldn't you agree? You can talk back, you know. You don't have to just stare at me like you're on drugs. I mean, don't you agree that it's pretty easy to ignore God most of the time? Right? Yeah, that's right. I could tell you a lot of weeks when I was working in corporate America, whole work days, 10 hours would go by where I would punch out at the end of the day in my car and go, oh, my goodness, I haven't thought about God once today. Not even, one, not even a fleeting thought. I might have even forgotten to pray for lunch. It's so easy in this world to lose sight of God. So that God, who if you were in his throne room, you couldn't even remember what the wallpaper looked like. All you would see is this awesome figure on a throne, rumbling like thunder, flashing like lightning. But out here, it's so easy most days to completely forget that God even exists. He becomes not just marginal, because marginal still, I kind of see you out of the corner of my eye. He becomes invisible behind us. Like what God? There's no God here. There's just my horrible spouse, my terrible job, my car that won't stop giving me problems. This knee that's just, it's, used, it's not what it used to be. And that's all we see. It's as if God does not enter the picture at all most days. 
And the only time he does enter is when good things happen down here. It is so easy to walk for years as a follower of Christ in name, but for most days to be mindless of him in actual life. So when we come here together on Sundays, our first task together is to look for God. To to just acknowledge the fact that walking into this place, I spent six days largely not thinking much about him. Now, I have an advantage over you. My day job is to work in the church, so I can't help it, right? It's like you don't think much about crime and law enforcement unless you're a policeman, right? Then you're like thinking about it all day long. I don't think much about the law and crime until it affects me, but God's stuff, it's on my mind all the time. But I've got to wonder for you guys who don't work in the church, it's got to be a lot like what I experienced in corporate America. God is theoretical, but so often he's invisible. The first task of worship is to remember that God is not only real, but he is to be seen at the center of everything. Look for him. I know that it's hard to look for him out there in the noise and the distraction, but in this place, that is our first task together. Whenever we gather to worship, is the question, not is the sermon going to be long, not is it going to be funny, interesting, whatever, not is the band going to be on this week, is the children's message going to be... Those are all things that are okay to look at, but the first task is to, is to just vigorously look for God. One of the things I most respect about my wife, Jeannie, is that she is so intentional in her pursuit of God. It's not easy when you're running the children's ministry to be a part of what's going on here Sunday after Sunday. But every week, this, this makes me feel still weird 20 years in, she will make time to listen to the sermon and she will pursue God in her own heart. Sometimes I'm in the car when she tries to listen. I'm like, that's not going to happen. You need to just turn that off. Wait till I'm not in the car. I can't stand the sound of my own. Pre- I just feel sorry for you guys. You've got to listen to it. But, you know, what I admire about that is ladies who are married. Show me, uh, let me see a show of hands. How many of you go out of your way to listen to your husband lecture for another hour without the opportunity to talk back to the CD player? How many of you would go that far? Because the one thing I really admire about her is she, she doesn't do it to flatter me or because I'm a good... She's so desperate to close that gap and see God. She's looking for him because if she doesn't see him, nothing else makes sense. It becomes impossible to do this without seeing God. For those in this congregation who go through week after week without ever once really glimpsing God, I wonder how you're holding it together. How do you make sense of any of this? How do you even want to wake up in the morning What brings meaning to all the other junk if you can't see him? It says, how many are good at math? What's 10,000 times 10,000? Quick. A lollipop to the first person who tells me. A hundred million. So he's walking into a room that has a seating capacity of a hundred million. Joel Osteen doesn't even begin to touch that. We're talking about a stadium of stadiums. And imagine walking into that, and the first thing you seize on is the throne in the middle. And every being in that place is situated around one central object. That's worship. Jesus at the center 
of everything. Let's move on. Here's the second thing I see in worship that is so critical. It's the spirit of offering. And what offering is, is declaring the worth of God. Cynics, calm down. This is not where I ask you for your money. Okay? Don't worry about it. We're talking about what's at the heart of this idea called offering. It is declaring the worth of God. Now, so much has been debated among scholars about who are these 24 elders. And numerologists go nuts on stuff like this. It's probably the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of Jesus or representatives thereof. And I just got so bored of reading all this conjecture because everyone in the end is just making a really good educated guess. We don't really, anyone who claims to know for sure, I don't believe them. I just don't believe them. I think that's hubris. I know one thing about them, though, that you can't argue. I may not know who they are, but I know this. They are not small potatoes. These 24 out of 100 million have the inner ring right around God, and they're the only ones who aren't standing or flying. They're sitting because God gave them thrones. There are 24 thrones situated around the big throne, and these guys are not just dressed in white like everyone else. They've got crowns. They've got crowns, just like a king would. So whoever these elders are, they are men of rank in the throne room of God. We don't know what they did on earth, what they represent exactly. We have many good guesses, but I know this for sure. They are people who are of rank. In that, we can identify with them. Because throughout the New Testament, there are hints that when we pass from this world to the next, we won't just be slaves in heaven. We will be co-regents with Christ. We will reign together with him. Look what it says in 2 Timothy 2.12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The idea is this, that the elders are not the only ones who will be people of note in heaven. That there will be a sense in which we all together, as children of God, will reign with Christ We will probably have crowns. That's what the New Testament seems to suggest. And what the elders do with their their crowns and what they do in their posture is so telling about what worship really is. They're seated on their thrones. And just imagine, how many of you ever felt like a VIP at any point in your life? Right? You know, when I travel retreats and there's like hundreds of people milling around and I walk into the, the... cafeteria and someone runs up to me with a plate already stacked of food oh you just come right here to the special seat we already scooped your food for you and they put it and i'm like what's up man you know i just i walk and i sit down like i'm treated like a vip you walk into your room and you don't have to share eight bunk beds high with everybody else you get your own room and it's quiet they put you off in the nice part of campus there's a big basket with fresh fruit and goodies and snacks and water and and frappuccinos in the bottle, and you're like, oh, yeah. It feels good to be a VIP. It feels good to see so many people and know that somehow I'm not like all the rest of them. I'm a different class, at least for right now. No one would argue that doesn't feel good. And here are these guys in a room full of 100 million worshipers, and they're seated on, on thrones with crowns on their heads. But watch what they do. Because what they realize is these thrones are not for their glory. These crowns are not for their glory. But they step away from those thrones and they fall on their faces in front of the great throne. 
they reach up and they take that crown off their head and they lay it like an offering, almost ashamed to even think to wear a crown in front of a king this great. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like being on the playground, talking, talking trash to all the other ballers until LeBron or, or MJ or Kobe walks up and you're like, suddenly you drop the ball. Like, I'm not that good. Everyone's like, dude, Kobe, you've got to check this guy out. He's the best player here. And you're like, shut up. I don't even want to touch a ball in front of this guy. It's embarrassing. They take the crowns off their head and they drop them in front of the throne. And they say these powerful words, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive. This is at the heart of what worship is. There's this posture of saying, I know that I'm not somebody who's just a belch in heaven, just an afterthought. I know that I'm somebody who matters. I know that awaiting me someday is a crown. Look what it says in, in 1 Peter 5, 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you, that's all of us, will also receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. We also will have crowns, but think of this. These elders are setting an example, teaching us what those crowns are for. Now, I don't know if you think it's childish to imagine a physical crown. I know that some academics who who are much more clever than I am see them as only symbolic or figurative. But I think that when he uses such language, it's meant to evoke something as if it were physical. I wouldn't be surprised if it, in fact, is an actual crown. But the gesture of reaching up and removing this thing from our heads is so much at the heart of worship. What the New Testament teaches is that the faithful in Christ will receive a crown. And that's not a small statement because those who are faithful in Christ to the end have a very clear sense of what that costs. I I know some of you know what it costs to follow Christ. It hasn't been easy at all. Some of you are holding it together right now in your life, not jumping ship, not abandoning, not fleeing, only because Christ has called you to remain where you are. And I know what it's cost you. You know what it's cost you. Every act of service, sacrifice, suffering endured, everything selfless we've done, every word of praise, all those things we do that are at great cost. The world may not applaud us, but God sees it all. He remembers. And one day there will be an accounting, and the summary statement of God over your life will be, well done, good and faithful servant. And he will crown your head with a crown of glory, a crown of life, a crown of righteousness, a crown of joy, you will have a crown. That's a summary statement of your life. You know, every time I write an offering check, I may be the pastor here, but it hasn't escaped me. This is an unnatural thing we do. It is so painful sometimes to write that check if all I think about is the money. And right now in our church, the situation is that only 20% are giving about 80% of what holds this place together. Okay, I mean, that's the reality financially of our church, is that 20% of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is hard to write that check. The rest of you are like, what's the big deal? Because, you know, (laughs) 
a chiclet versus a, a bazooka. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're, we're talking about for some people, that check is painful to write because it expresses the ends of the earth faithfulness to their Savior. And I know when you write it and you wonder, what about the rest? I wonder if everybody's bearing the load together. It doesn't matter because for you, it's not about sharing the load. It's about being faithful to your king. And I know that we may not applaud or acknowledge what you're doing. And that's just one example, giving. There are so many other examples where you have offered up your life. Where you see that person who just, you know like what I'm talking about, that person who, when, when they call and you see their number on the caller ID, you know it's going to be a long and arduous conversation. It's going to start with something negative. Uh, do you have a minute? Because, man, I just need to, you know. And you're like, in, and everything you says, I just want to send it to voicemail. I can't, right now, where I am, I cannot deal with this conversation. And yet I know sometimes, for some of you, you have hit send, and you have answered that call, and you have blessed another person's life. And it has not been easy, has it? It's rarely easy to be faithful to God to the end. And we wonder, is it worth it? What's the point of all this sacrifice and selflessness. And, and what God teaches us is, don't worry. I see it all. And one day, I will crown your head with glory. But if that's all he said, I can tell you what my mind is thinking. On some days, I'm going, you know what? God, keep the crown. I don't need a crown, all right? My head is fine naked here. If that's what it costs to get a crown, I'd rather take the easy way out. I, I can't deal with this right now. It's too hard. If it was just the crown, it wouldn't be enough motivation, would it? If you met with me during one of the hardest periods of your life, and I said to you, look at me, I said to you, look, hey, buddy, suck it up, endure it, because guess what? At the end of it all, you're going to get a crown. In a moment of your lowest life, would you be like, oh, well, that just makes it all better. Good, a crown, because that's what I'm missing. If I could just have a crown this marriage, this job, this career, this teenager, it would be all worth it. Sorry, teenagers, sometimes your parents feel that way. You know, it would be all worth it just, just for a crown. A crown in itself cannot possibly be worth all that you'll endure to be faithful to the end. But here's the amazing thing. It is in the act of offering that the crown finds its worth and meaning. If all I'm saying is, boy, after all that, check it out. Bam! You see that crown? If that's what I'm working for, it isn't enough to move me. But here's where the motivation comes in. Because I've learned, I'm sure you have learned, that in life, every truly motivating drive is relational, isn't it? The most powerful motivations are not things, objects. They are people, relationships, love. Listen. There's a lot I wouldn't do to get a prize or a nice house or a good car. But for my family, there's just about nothing I won't do. I might even shoot a person for my family. I don't know. I'm a pastor, but I got to be honest. There's very little I wouldn't do for my family. Because when I think about them, something swells up in my heart. And I am motivated day after day. It hasn't diminished one bit over the last 20 years. Strangely, it grows. So that when you say, hey, at the end of it all, you're going to have a really nice 
retirement plan. I don't care. You can have really, really great retirement years. You're going to have an awesome house to rest in. I don't care about any of it. But if you tell me that I will have the heart and the love of my family, that compels me to go through just about anything. I think that's what's missing for so many of us in this journey with Christ is we have been given so many secondary motivations, things that can't possibly hold us through all the rough stuff. No one will endure to the end for a crown. I don't care how great the crown is. Plus, everyone else is going to have one. What's the big deal? But it's when you take that crown and you touch it, and with every touch of that crown, you remember vividly every little thing you endured for his sake. And as you remove it from your head, what you're saying is, I know what this cost, but man, you are worth it. You're worth it. It's what I hope every young man feels on his knee, taking a ridiculously expensive piece of jewelry, irresponsibly, sinfully expensive. But you say to this woman, this is the dumbest financial move I ever made, but you are worth it. It cost me three months income, woman. Don't lose it. But what you're saying with that gesture is, this was hard to get. Man, were you worth it. You're worth it. You're totally worth it. And that's the only compelling motivation that will carry us to the end of our lives with faithfulness. And so it's not that we're trying to say to you, what God wants is your stuff. But what he's saying is when you offer your life and your riches and your achievements and your suffering and your scars, when you offer all of that, finally in that moment, all of that stuff finds its real value, its worth, its meaning. Because now you've, you, you understand why it was important, why anyone should live that way, why we should endure rather than retaliate. In that moment of offering, everything I endured finally makes sense. I once had the experience of going to a very remote place, and there was a little fair where, where you could buy souvenirs. And I bought a bunch of souvenirs, and I thought I had enough. And then I came home, and on the flight home, I started going down the list of all the people I care about that I wanted to give one of these tchotchkes to, and I realized I was woefully short. <laughs> there were like 15 names I'd forgotten. I was like, oh, man. And the feeling was, what am I supposed to do about that? I can't go back now. The moment to acquire those treasures is past. There was a finite window in which I was to grab all that I could, and I didn't grab enough, and now returning home to offer those prizes. I was coming up short, and it was so frustrating. I, I wished I had bought more when I had the chance. And I think for many of us, that will be the feeling in our hearts that day when we get to the, the great wedding banquet, and the worship service begins, and everyone's gathered around the throne. And as we reach up for those crowns, we'll say in our hearts, man, 60 years born again on that earth. I wished I had stored up something more. He's so worthy. I see it now in a way I never saw it. And I can only wish at that moment I had done more while the, while the doing was possible. That I had endured better. I had served more faithfully. I had held on to him, honored him. I'm not saying guilt here. I'm saying regret that this feeling of I want so much more to give. Because I finally see how worthy he is. 
And I'm saying to you, now is the day of shopping at the bazaar. This is the hour, the season, the narrow window in which to honor the Lord with your earthly days. To live without a plan B. To give Him everything so that one day when you reach up for that crown, it's heavy with a life lived in His honor. And when you finally see how worthy He is, you can lay that crown down and say, I finished my walk with very few regrets. Let me give you one last thing. I've got to hurry so that the seeds people don't get upset with me again. Submission. So we know that when we walk in here, our first task is to look for God and see him seated at the center of everything. The second is to realize one day our lives will be an offering to God and to remember that he is worthy of everything. But here's the third element I see. It says that these elders stepped away from their thrones and they didn't just bow like Asians bow. You know, this is, this is really not a bow. This is a bow of convenience. This is a bow, okay? Do you see that? Where you're kissing the floor, right? Almost every part of the front of your body is touching ground. That's a bow. It gets your clothes dirty. It's, it's lying prostrate before... That prostrate's the right word. Okay, I always get that mixed up. Before God, completely prone, no question who is Lord, who is subject. And these elders relinquish their place of authority. And in doing that, they acknowledge the right of God to rule over us. I think the act of removing our crowns is not just about declaring his worth, but about saying, I don't really have the right to wear a crown. Whenever I have led my own life, I have done it poorly. If I were ruler of the world, the world would be a sad place. Only God has the right to wear this crown. And so in the removal of the crown, we are acknowledging the rightful authority of God alone to rule over all else. You may be given charge of some small responsibility. In his honor, you will reign with him. But in God's presence, let there be no mistake who wears the crown and who does not. I think for a lot of people in the church, this will be the lifelong battle, the struggle of our hearts, won't it? The word lordship is the defining struggle of most Christian lives, especially here in America. It's as if what we're saying is, this is God, but even God has to negotiate with me the right to rule over me with dominion. What does that say about us as a people? that one of our greatest struggles in Christian life is to recognize that God is actually king over everything. But that is, in fact, the great American struggle in the church. And it's the heart of most conversations I have with people. How can God more get his way in the situation? How can Jesus actually be Lord here over your life because that answer unlocks so many places where we're stuck. Now, the kind of submission that God is looking for is not where some jackbooted thug drives you to your knees, get down before the king. He doesn't want that. What he wants is for us to step away from our thrones, to voluntarily remove this crown of authority, 
and in the most humble gesture, acknowledge him. Lay it before him and say, I feel silly even wearing this thing in front of you. You alone have the right to rule over everything. Theologian N.T. Wright once commented, the main thing that separates us from the animals is the word because. We understand this idea that we do things not just because we have instinct or because our bodies tell us, but we do things for a reason. There is a because dynamic in the human experience. Why worship? Why acknowledge his right to rule? What gives him that right over us? And in Revelation 5 that Steve read in verse 9, it says, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's what gives him the right to rule. Is that at the expense of his own life, he purchased each of us who say we follow him. You can't get the benefit of that statement and reject the other truth that he now has the rightful authority over your life. That your experience of being a Christian will never be complete just because you have eternal security. But it will only become full as you lay down your own authority and recognize the right of God to rule over everything. This will be the defining struggle for most of us in the entire journey we have with him. I pray that he'll give you victory step by step. Listen, there's never been a question of whether we will worship or not. We were made to worship. That is the one drive you can't suppress in the human heart. We must worship. The only question in your life and mine is what we worship, whom we worship. Whether we worship is not a question at all. You may think that's too strong a statement, but think about this. What really drives your life? Take a look at the bulletin that you you were handed when you walked in here. Every week, we we will update a little session called My Next Steps. And one of the next steps is, if you have the courage for it, find someone who knows you well and ask them, what do you think really drives my life? Don't just say God because it's the right answer. You know me. You know what gets me. And ask them questions like this. What do you see in my life that makes me worry, that makes me super happy or super ticked off? Where do you see my greatest fears? What do you think has the power to tell me whether I'm doing well or not doing well? What do you think gives me my worth? when I feel good about myself and when I feel terrible about myself and ask these people to tell you the answers to those questions because what we're really getting at is your friends all know what you worship. Question is, do you? Do I? You worship something. Even if in name you worship God, the people closest to you will tell you what you really worship. They won't come right out and say it, but they'll say it this way. This is when I see you the happiest, when this happens. This is when I see you the most irreparably damaged and in despair when this happens. This is when your face lights up. This is when you get insecure. What do you worship, really? What do you you really worship at the end of everything? And I can tell you as a pastor, it's so easy for me to think that I passed this quiz already. I mean, come on, seriously? I'm a pastor, right? I work all day. But it's, this, it's a question that's been really troubling me this whole week. 
I don't know if I really want to ask the people close to me. Because then I've got a serious issue with not just my own life, but my job too. I'm like, man, what is it that I actually worship? It's a powerful question to ask and to see answered. When we do come to worship God, let's make our first task to look for him. Where are you, God? I need to see you above everything else. And let's remember that one day, everything in our lives will be presented as an offering. And on that day, for the first time ever, you will really see how worthy he is to receive. Will your heart be filled with the regrets of what you did not grab while you could? Or will you give him that crown and lay it at his feet with a thud and say, man, that was hard. But you were worthy. And as we worship, the other battle to fight every Sunday relentlessly is, God, will you win the fight to dominate and rule over my heart? I don't want a life that I made for myself. I know I think I do, but I don't want that life. I won't handle it responsibly. I want you to take your place and rule my life. And that is not an easy thing to say or to see God follow through on. But it's the battle we wage Sunday after Sunday, quiet time after quiet time. Come, be Lord over my redeemed heart. Be my master, my king. Let me lay down my authority in front of yours. That is what worship is. And so when we come together week after week, let there be no confusion any longer about what is to happen in this building every Sunday for us together. Amen? Why don't we go to God in prayer? You know, a a wise man once observed to me that preaching is a very frustrating and faith-filled exercise because at the time that the sermon and the word of God is burning a heart into the preacher's heart, when he gets to the pulpit and speaks, his words never really do justice to the heaviness of the thoughts and feelings that God put in there. That's how I'm feeling right now. And so I'm trusting the Holy Spirit to do far more than what I just did up here, opening my mouth. Because this is so important. You get worship wrong and you will be among the many multitudes who are enduring church Sunday after church Sunday, bored out of your wits, confused to no end, thinking every Sunday, maybe next Sunday, will be the day I finally have the courage to stop pretending. You get worship wrong None of this will make you feel alive. But just around the corner from that deadness in your heart is a God who lives and reigns and right now in heaven, a hundred million angels in one voice are telling him that he has the right to rule, that he is holy like no one else, that he is worthy of everything. This is your God. And if you can see him By the grace of God, even for a moment, something will change inside of you. And so we go to prayer now. And the first thing we'll ask together is, will you let me see? Just like you showed John. Just a glimpse so that this becomes more serious to me. 
Can we do that right now? Let's go to God and ask Him to open the eyes of our hearts and help us to see God in His worthiness and His glory. So God, we just confess that life out here in this world makes it really hard to see You most days. We feel like half-blind people stumbling through a fog, knowing You're there, but having a hard time seeing And because we don't see you, it's hard to worship. How do we see the worth of someone we can't even see so much of the time? And so help us now. Open the eyes of our hearts, just a glimpse, a taste. Because I believe, Lord, some in this church won't make it much longer without seeing that. Show us yourself. We believe everything else will follow. Come now, mighty God, and become the realest presence in this room right now. We ask for that, that even as we sing, something supernatural would descend upon us together, and through the next song we sing, we will be transported into the throne room of Almighty God, our hearts will come alive. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.